Our scripture reading this morning comes from Psalm 130. You can find that on page 518 in your pew Bible. Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Good morning. I knew that was going to happen at 11. You sound like the service of people who stayed up too late last night. 9.30 are the people who went to bed on time. I'm glad you're here. Happy New Year to you. Uh, It's good to see you. Uh, Thanks for coming to worship together this morning as we look at Psalm 130. Um, As we turn the page, the calendar page, to a new year, I wonder, uh, are New Year's resolutions still a thing for you? Still as if they're in past tense? Do any of you have any New Year's resolutions that you'd like to share with us? I'm just kidding. Do you have any New Year's resolutions this morning? Like five of you? Okay, six? Okay, good. Well, you know, we we kind of poke fun at resolutions sometimes. It used to not be that way, I suppose. But it seems that resolutions have become more of a chance to uh, laugh at people's failure or kind of make light of goals uh, rather than to actually encourage one another to achieve something uh, in a year. Uh, Maybe you don't like them because... I just don't need the calendar to tell me that it's time to go back to the gym. I am fully aware of that already. Um, Or maybe you just don't like that kind of pressure. Uh, Or or maybe you are a resoluter. Um, Is that a word? Um, Maybe you're a goal-oriented person. You like fresh starts, the the freshness that a new year brings. I tend to think goals are are good for most things. Uh, I like uh, the start of a new year. Uh, I, I think they're... They're good because they can help you to frame things, to give you something to aim at as long as you hold things in the right perspective. Perhaps people have been less uh, excited about resolutions because someone once said, if you aim at nothing, you're guaranteed to hit it every time. So if you don't make a goal, you're sure to achieve it. Congratulations. Um, But maybe uh, one of your goals this year is to attend church more. And here we are on the first day of the year, and you're, you're off to a great start. Congratulations. Um, but I wonder what will happen with our goals as the year progresses, much like last year, and the year before that, and the year before that, when, when times may get tough, and the unexpected happens, uh, or maybe the expected just happens to come true. Uh, I've heard many people say recently that they're simply ready for 2016 to be over. Um, Seems that 2016 was tough 
for a lot of people in many ways. It, it was for me. Perhaps it, it was for you as well. And you're hoping for a better 2017. And I, I wonder what, if you were pressed, you would use to quantify better for the coming year. Uh, on what or on whom are you, are you hoping? Are you placing those hopes? Well, this morning, we're going to look at the source of true hope in the midst of real despair. We'll see through the experience of this psalmist in Psalm 130 uh, this morning that as the, ta- as the calendar changes and as time ticks on, God is challenging us through his word, as he does always, to put our hope and our trust in him and in him alone. And it's because of Jesus that our hope uh, is, is sure and that we're included in God's redemption as his people, regardless of what year it is, which gives us uh, a, a great and certain expectation for joy, even in the midst of trouble and in the midst of waiting. And so as we look at this psalm together, it's important to keep in mind uh, where it exists within the greater uh, book. Uh, it is part of, uh, it is one of 15 psalms of ascent, which is from Psalm 120 to 134. But this one, in particular, follows a certain redemptive arc. It, it has a, a start and a finish that are, are quite different. Uh, it begins with an individual lament or cry of despair, and it concludes with hope and joy. The psalmist uh, begins with his eyes on himself and on his own condition, and the more he sees God, the more he becomes aware of the truth of who God is and reflects on that, wouldn't you know it, his condition changes. Why? Well, it's because his perspective changes. He moves from one end of the emotional spectrum, that being uh, a fear and despair and condemnation with respect to evil and sin, to the other end, that being hope and love and redemption. Uh, one striking aspect of this psalm is the emotional movement of the soul that is conveyed based on the truth of who God is. Uh, James Vaughn said of this psalm, just as the barometer marks the rising of the weather, so does this psalm, sentence by sentence, record the progress of the soul. So let's begin looking at this beautiful progression of the soul by looking at the psalmist's cry of despair. And we'll have two sections to this sermon, the cry of despair, which we'll look at now in verses 1 through 3, and then the re- remainder we'll look at the response of faith. So first, the cry of despair in verses 1 through 3. So in this first section, we, we kind of see within this cry of despair uh, three movements. There is affliction, conviction, and condemnation. So first, affliction in verse 1. Now, it's unknown who the author of this psalm is exactly or, or when it was written or, or even the specific context. But it is clear from the first line that there is a, there's a depth of contrition here and a fear in the mind and in the heart of the author. Uh, in Scripture broadly, and here specifically, anytime you come across the phrase in the depths or from the depths, such as mentioned here, uh, you get this idea of, of, of a tumultuous, uh, swirling sea of trouble. Uh, and, and in fact, uh, we know that we can uh, identify with this, right, if we're honest. Uh, 
we've all been there. Uh, we don't talk about it much. In fact, this is where we, we, we tend to keep silent, probably much to our detriment. Uh, but suffering of any kind can certainly be a, a slippery slope to the depths, can it? Um, the outward and inward cry of the heart from, from physical, uh, mental, and emotional anguish can, can be treacherous for the soul and, and, and for faith, for faith itself. But the psalmist's cry from the depths here is of a very particular nature. It's a plea for mercy. So in his affliction in the depths, there is a conviction of the soul. So we move from affliction to conviction in verse 2. He says, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. And, and so we move from affliction in the depths to this conviction of soul. And he cries out and pleads for mercy. And in the way that he's using the name of God here, it's as if he is um, an unprofitable servant standing before his master. And so why all of this distress? Why the depth of the cry? Why this conviction? Well, what brings conviction to your soul? Uh, you, you think back to the, the troubling headlines in 2016 in culture and in politics uh, with the election, racial tension and injustice, uh, sexual ethics, the echo chamber <laughs> that is uh, social media, uh, rights for the unborn, the refugee crisis, ISIS and global terror, and even just a few miles down the street, the violence in Chicago. The list could go on for global, national, and even local news. But this morning, this January 1st, what about the headlines in your life? For the past year. I'm not talking just about the good stuff that you post on social media, you know, to make us all think that everything's good and smiley. Um, I'm talking about the things that don't leave the walls of your home or the trappings of your mind, the real distresses. W.S. Plummer remarks, we never have so good a cause for distress of mind that's when we find sin defiling us and dragging us into the deep places. Every sigh and groan from hell or earth, every cry wrung from the distress of conscience is the fruit of sin. Sin has dug every grave, built every prison, even hell itself. So why does a person need mercy? Why do we feel conviction? Why do you need mercy this day? Well, because we are broken. Why do we have songs like Robin just sang about sinners coming home? Well, we are broken. We are broken by the doings of others and the goings on in our world. But firstly, we are broken by our own doing, right? We can only blame things on others and on the culture for so long before the weight of conviction resides on our own shoulders and we stand, uh, rather we fall in need of mercy because we stand justly condemned, just as our psalmist does. And so we move from affliction to conviction to now condemnation. And it's a just condemnation. Social and cultural and even racial injustice was at the forefront of the headlines this past year and likely will be, will be again to some degree in 2017. Uh, and we can and should 
certainly do more as the church to stand in the face of injustice in our culture. Uh, But we have to stand for injustice because injustice exists. And we are tempted when we feel the weight of conviction to somehow feel that there is an unjust an injustice being done against us. And perhaps that is true in some cases. But in this case, when you stand before God, there is no injustice. The courtroom which was with, uh, in which this psalmist finds himself, it's not a kangaroo court. It's not a court or a, a system that is biased or corrupt. This response of a plea for mercy uh, comes from someone who is facing a holy an eternal justice, and he knows it, and he knows it. And so what is it about this conviction of sin that leads us to this, this cry from the depths, from the, from the seat of who I am, and a plea for mercy? Well, I think it's because this man knows God. He knows who God is. He knows the judge. He knows before whom he stands. He knows the sovereignty of God. He, he knows the holiness of God. He knows if the Lord held us accountable for every wrong and for every good left undone, every time we miss the mark, which is what sin means, who could stand before the Lord? Not him. Not me. Not you. Standing before this God, there is no smugness. There is no flippancy or dismissiveness, no arrogance. It's very true. As Calvin said, it's not possible to know yourself without knowing God. And I think that's what this man is experiencing. He's certainly not without the knowledge of God. In fact, it's because of his knowledge of God that he is fearful and is crying out in the midst of despair over his sin. He's broken. Have you been there? Maybe you're there now, this morning. Perhaps the dark night of the soul, as, as we say sometimes. Or perhaps not. You know, if we treat sin flippantly and never come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and I say this carefully, could it be that you, in fact, are not a Christian? When we are children of God, followers of Christ, it certainly doesn't mean that we don't sin. Unfortunately, we do. But it does mean, however, that we grow in godliness, in knowledge, and in practice by the presence uh, and work of the Holy Spirit. We love the things that God loves. We hate the things that God hates. Certainly, we are saved by faith and grace alone, but we are not saved by a faith that remains alone. It is accompanied by the putting off of sin and putting on of the righteousness that only comes from Jesus. And so you might say, well, I hate certain things around me that I know are evil. I hate the things that are culturally acceptable to hate and despise. Well, maybe so. But it's easy to hate the things that are acceptable to hate, to put those things down and put them away, and all the while ignoring the evil that is kept secret within. Are you quick to confess and to turn to God or are you quick to excuse, to self-justify or even outright ignore? If there's not a component of repentance such as we find here in your walk with the Lord this morning on this fresh start to a new year, I would ask you to consider your standing with the Lord.
Friend, if you toe the line and cross the line of sin on a regular basis without reservation, without conviction, without the fear of God, you are standing on dangerous ground. And when you parent out of anger, when you listen to or are a conduit of gossip, when you're sexually unfaithful with your eyes or your mind or your body, when you're verbally abusive, when you lie, when you withhold forgiveness, are you passive towards your sin? You can rest assured this morning that God is not. In fact, if, if, if you need to be reminded of how God looks upon sin, then you need look no further than the cross of Christ. The cross is the great collision of this justice and mercy that we so long for. The cross of Christ is how serious God views sin. One thing to notice here that I haven't mentioned is that in the midst of this, this isn't an aimless plea. It's pointed. In the first three verses, our psalmist uses the, phrase, the name of the Lord four times. He knows who his audience is. He knows when he is in need of mercy and forgiveness and feeling this type of weight of conviction. He knows where he should turn. And he knows uh, how to be certain of its source. And so as we enter 2017, do you know this? Do you know this? Perhaps you've never trusted Christ before. You've never thrown yourself before the mercy of the cross. Why not start this year off uh, as freshly as possible with a fresh start before God? You see, this year you might be looking to take some aspect of your life to the next level, whatever that means, to improve, to grow, to be more consistent, or just a little bit better than last year. Great goals, I'm sure. But as good as 2017 looks on the first day of the year, Know that wherever you are in your walk with Jesus, you never move on from this, from this truth. Because with the Lord and with the Lord alone, there is forgiveness. And this is our transition point. Because it's a transition point for our psalmist. When he realizes this, this truth, as we see in verse 4, that there is with the Lord forgiveness, that the Lord may be feared, everything changes. And everything can change for you. Because we don't move on from this. This is the central piece of our salvation. And it's the central piece of our growth and sanctification, our discipleship, our growth and maturity towards Christ-likeness. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So who is this one to be feared? It's the one whom, with the power of pardon permanently resides. And as Spurgeon said, he who has forgiveness ready to his hand this instant. It's available to you now, right now. You see, forgiveness increases our reverent, our reverent and our, our awe and trust of God. If we can trust him with this in the midst of our despair, in the midst of our brokenness, how then can we not trust him for all things? For all things. And this is the wonderful truth of the gospel that we who live at this point in history on this side of the first advent of Christ and his cross can look to God for forgiveness and know that it is so. How glorious is redemption. The redemption purchased 
by Christ. It is so full, so free, so safe for man, so honorable to God. It exactly meets the demand of the law and the necessities of sinners. There are no limits to its sufficiency. W.S. Plummer. And it was with that truth that our psalmist, as do we, make our turn from despair towards hope. And so we looked at this cry of despair. Now we look at this response of faith. So after hearing and believing and receiving the forgiveness that comes from God, you know, we we might think that there's going to be a list of to-dos. Wow, I have this great life, this great new life, this clean slate with God. Now what do I do? Well, it's as if this psalmist has had a conversation with my mom when she used to tell me, hurry up and wait. But this turn from, des- from despair to hope, it- it- it's not about a command. It's about enablement. Because we are able to trust the Lord to meet our greatest need, we are enabled by faith in four areas. We are enabled in our waiting. We are enabled in our hoping, in our watching, and in our telling. So these four things we'll look at with the remainder of our time from verses five to the end. So first, we are enabled in our waiting. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. Verse five. Trials and convictions, they bring us restlessness, right? We're tempted towards um, despair. We're, We're tempted towards worry and anxiety. But waiting is part of the human experience. If, if we can agree that most of our sin comes from selfishness, and we can say that selfishness is simply thought of as wanting what you want when you want it the way that you want it, waiting counteracts that selfishness, doesn't it? It makes us stop. It makes us stop. It also gives us a reality check that the world doesn't revolve around me or you. It reminds us who is the sovereign in our, life, in our lives, and it is God. When we are dependent beings... Most of all, we realize that we are dependent on this God, on God for our righteousness. And so what is it that this author is waiting for? Well, he's waiting for relief. He's waiting for relief from the burden of his sin. And he knows only the Lord can bring such relief. Do you know this this morning? Perhaps you're waiting for uh, a victory or some kind of breakthrough in your own struggle with sin and temptation. Perhaps it's a prayer to be answered that you're waiting on for a friend or a family member. Just as we trust that the Lord can do all of these things, you can trust that he hears your prayers even as you wait. He hears your cries. You have an audience with him. And he will enable your waiting. And we wait because he loves. So waiting Secondly, we're enabled in our hoping. Now, hoping and waiting are inextricably linked in the Christian experience. When you read or hear about waiting or hoping, I wonder what comes to your mind. Most of the time for me, I tend to think of kind of this actionless um, waiting, a time period where I don't really do anything, just passively letting the time tick off the clock, waiting for God to just do something. Well, this is not a call to passivity. Waiting, in this case, is actively hoping. And the object of this hope is the word of God, which in itself is living and active. It is full of promises. It is a call to pursuit. It's not an excuse for passivity. 
And so this morning, if you're unenthusiastic about the word, I would ask you to examine your view and your view of the word and its place in your life. Talking about the Bible, of course. This is where theology is not an abstract concept. You know, we, uh, Stephen mentioned the reading plan for 2016. We give this plan to help you, to help all of us. I used this plan last year. Uh, it, it, it's, it helps us to, to stay true to, in, to where we hope, to where our hope lies. If, if you have another plan, no problem. Just stick to it. But don't blow this off. Maybe, maybe it's been quite a while since you've even read a chapter of the Bible on your own. There's no time like the present to start. You know, it's, and it's not because we just want to be a bunch of uh, kind of legalistic box checkers, as good as, it feels good, as good as it feels to check off the boxes. I know, I get it. Um, because there will be moments of trouble this year for you. They may not be as heavy as last year or in times past, but there will be periods of waiting. You'll be faced with the effects of sin. It's going to happen. So where will you go? More than that, where is your hope? This is an active hope, not arbitrarily placed. And so in waiting, as Spurgeon has said, we study the word, we believe the word, hope in the word, and live on the word, all because it is his word, the word of him who never speaks in vain. Jehovah's word is a firm ground for a waiting soul to rest upon. And so we have waiting and hoping, and now we are enabled in our watching. Verse 6. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. More than the watchman for the morning. Here the psalmist gives us a look into his own soul. And for his own longings for the Lord. You know, the, the watchman example, it, it is one of certain expectancy. This is perhaps the most famous section of this psalm. And the word picture here is striking because it's repeated twice. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. More than the watchman for the morning. He is, he is longing for relief as ardently and as expectedly as the guard, as the sentinel stands in the watchtower of the city and guards against danger and evil and is only waking, uh, waiting for daybreak so that his relief from his post may be at hand. His soul, the seat of his desire, is waiting it is waiting to catch a glimpse of relief that comes not from the dawn of the morning, but from the dawn of redemption. And in Scripture, morning is always an image of new beginning, isn't it? Much like a new year. It's a symbol of hope in the natural world. For us, from day to day, it's when we rise. It's when we begin our day, new beginnings. And for this, our psalmist waits Normally, we view waiting as an expression of, of, of negative impatience. But here, the waiting on the Lord is filled with an even greater hope than what comes from the morning. For the sentinel watchmen, they waited through the night for the coming of evil, of, of evil. But as someone said, it is a far higher and better and more filial thing to watch for a coming good than to watch against an approaching evil. And this is why we hope in the Lord. For he is our coming good he is the dawn of new life. He is that for me, and he has been that for me, and he will be that for me, and he can be that for you. Waiting, hoping, watching, 
All of these things are explicit in the text. Our final enablement of telling is implicit. Telling. What do we tell in verses 7 and 8? Well, the audience, you'll notice, changes here. The psalmist begins by speaking to God. In verses 1 through 4, he calls out, he calls on the name of the Lord, O Lord, four times. But here in verse 7, he says, O Israel, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. It's as if he, in his experience, in this progression of the soul, is so primed and so moved from despair to hope that he must bring others with him. He must bring others with him to see this God, to experience this God, to know this God where you can find plentiful redemption. Don't you just love that phrase? Plentiful redemption. Dave and I were talking about that this week. Um, It's complete. It's full. It's abundant. And it only belongs to the Lord and is found in his steadfast love. There is no lack. It's abundant and comprehensive for this writer and for anyone who would turn to God in hope for forgiveness. And when you experience something like this, you tell others. You don't keep it silent. When you see someone who is bound in the sin that you were once bound in, you don't turn a blind eye. You speak the truth in love and for the sake of love and for the sake of redemption, you bring people to the hope of the Lord and to his word. You cry out, not, O Israel, but, O friend, hope in the Lord, for with him is steadfast love and plentiful redemption. We need each other to do this. We need to be telling each other our stories. And yet most of the time, we feel that we must wait until we have it all put together. You know that this isn't real, right? The outer is going to fade away. It's the inward workings of the heart where the Lord will change us and will help you to bring others along. You don't have to wait till you have it all put together. If you wait for that, you will never tell. We need each other. I need you. Speaking of goals, uh, this year, this past year, 2016, I had a goal to uh, run a marathon. And some would call it a race. Uh, I would call a race something that you aim to win. So I just went for a run. Um, It was my first time. uh, And I had read up. I had done my studying and training, or at least so I thought. (laughs) Um, About two-thirds through the race, uh, run, excuse me, I, uh, I hit what they call the wall, right? It's like mile 19 or 20. And you get tired, Obviously, your mind starts to wander a little bit. Your form droops. You don't breathe as well, and you start thinking terrible things like to quit. Why did I even start doing this in the first place? Well, fortunately for me, I wasn't running alone. Amidst the sea of people who I didn't know, I had a friend with me, Adam, who was pacing me. Now, He's the type of guy who could wake up and maybe he even ran a marathon this morning before he came here. I don't know. Um, I'm pretty sure he didn't even break a sweat during our our time together. Um, But as I was sort of spiraling into uh, la-la land, uh, he stayed right beside me and kept 
telling me what I needed to hear. Uh, Not necessarily what I wanted to hear. But he just told me the basic things. Keep one foot in front of the other. Keep good form. Stand up straight. Breathe. And sure enough, as I struggled through a few more miles, the fog just lifted. I don't know what happened. Somebody can explain the biology to me after the service. I don't know. Um, Something with endorphins probably. But I just did what I knew to do as the basics of running. And everything cleared up and I finished. And that's what the psalmist is doing here for Israel. He's encouraging them just to do the basic things. It's not overly profound. It's beautiful in the way that he says it. But all he's doing is telling his story. He's telling God's story to them. The way that he says it, yes, is beautiful. And yes, is profound. The truth of God's redemption is plentiful. And the assurance of deliverance that that God can bring us out of this is amazing. But the truth of the matter is that it's simple. And this is the basics of our faith. There is no need to overcomplicate it. You don't have to say it eloquently. You don't have to write it in prose. You just have to be willing to speak it when the time is there. This psalm has, as I said at the beginning, a a distinct and profound yet simple redemptive arc to it. He moves from the depths now to having all of his iniquities forgiven. And he says that for Israel. It is quite the progression of the soul. And so for us, as we look at our place in the redemptive arc of history, we know that this is the simplicity of the gospel. It's the basics. And yet, it changes everything. It allows you to finish and to finish strong. It's the goal for which you aim. And you and I should be telling others, not just some of the time, but all of the time, telling others about the gospel in the midst of our story. Again, not waiting till we've got it all fixed and all buttoned up. In the throes of our struggle with sin even. Up until the time where we experience this plentiful redemption and steadfast love found in God through his son Jesus Christ. Now it could be this morning that you're not able to tell others because for you, quite frankly, maybe there's not that much to tell. It's not because you're not a sinner uh, in need of mercy But perhaps it's because until now you've refused to come to Christ, to throw yourself before the mercy of God. Or perhaps you're just simply in the depths. Friend, redemption is available to you and it is plentiful and it is glorious. There's a phrase that we use around here sometimes. I think Pastor Stephen uh, brought it to us. We, We use the phrase redemptive vulnerability. Uh, It simply means that you share your story in a way that honors God. It doesn't glorify sin. It it glorifies God so that other people would be redeemed. Sometimes we do that up here. Uh, Sometimes we do that one-to-one. Sometimes that would happen in your small group or in your family. But when my name was put on the calendar uh, to preach this day, uh, there was no text next to it, which means that I get to choose what we preach. Uh, what we hear this morning. Uh, and for me, uh, that's not the easiest part of sermon prep. In fact, I'd, it's the hardest part. I'm not sure why that is. Um, but as I'm encouraging you this morning to tell other people your story, uh, it's been one of my goals this morning to preach this text in the midst of mine. 2016 was a trying year for the Stringer household. As you'll remember, this time last year, I was not 
the pastor of discipleship at College Church in Wheaton, as it currently says on my office door. I was the campus pastor of College Church in South Wheaton. Now, if you don't know about our South Campus, uh, you can ask somebody around you if you're visiting here this morning and don't know that story. But the process of bringing the South Campus to a conclusion, it was difficult. It was right, but it was difficult. And processes and logistics aside, this past year, I wrestled. I wrestled with failure, with doubt, with pride, with disappointment, inadequacy, anger, jealousy, gossip, idolatry, and in its simplest form, sadness. Not because anything was imposed on me, but because it's the weight of my own sin. But by the grace of God, truly by the grace of God, I stayed in his word, even, quite frankly, when I didn't want to. And basically, it was because I had nowhere else to go. I was kind of at the end of myself. And at some point during the summer, while the South Campus was on a temporary break, which would later become permanent, by simply following the reading plan, I was trying to be a good box checker. I was having a quiet time, a a devotional time, probably one in the summer that I didn't even look forward to having. But I read this psalm. And I read it as I had read it before, just as many uh, of you have. But this time, I had one of those moments in in the middle of this time with the Lord. um, And I felt like the watchman. I felt like the watchman. Because redemption had to be right around the corner, right? It had to be on the horizon. Had to be. I was waiting for and wanting relief. But the truth is, and this is how the Lord works, he reminded me of the truth from which I wanted to move on, the gospel. While I was waiting for relief to come from somewhere else, God reminded me, that my redemption had already come. I wanted to move on from the gospel, but the redemption I had been longing for, it wasn't in my ability. It wasn't in success, whatever that even means. It wasn't in ministry or my leadership or the perception of accomplishment. The ark of redemption began at the manger where God's steadfast love was made flesh, which is what we've just celebrated. It was accomplished at the cross And it glories only in the Savior whose tomb is empty and is still empty. You see, nothing that I went through and nothing that you went through in 2016, as lamentable as some of it may be, put Jesus back in the tomb. Nothing that will happen to you in 2017 will put Jesus back in the tomb. Or the year after that, or the year after that. Oh, college church, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love and plentiful redemption, and he will redeem you from all of your iniquities, all of your sins, all of the things about you that you don't want to tell anyone, all of your insecurities and all of your fears. He will set right your hopes, your resolutions, and your goals. He who did not spare his own son, how will he not graciously give you all things? 2017 might be a fresh start for some of you. 
and I hope that it is. But it won't be because the calendar changed to another year. It will be because of the gospel and your trust in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, it is with great thanks that we come to you and in great humility and perhaps even in the depths. We cry to you knowing that there is forgiveness of sins and plentiful redemption because of your steadfast love for us. Lord, there are many people here this morning coming from many different 2016 experiences, trials, tribulations, joys, celebrations. As we move together as the family of God into this new year, we don't know what's ahead of us, but we know you. And I pray, Lord, that each one of us would be hoping and trusting and waiting and watching and telling of the plentiful redemption that you've offered to us in Christ. Father, for the one who is here, who is in the depths, who is finding it difficult to put one foot in front of the other, maybe even to just breathe, would you lift their eyes to the horizon that they may be as the watchmen waiting for the dawn of redemption in their own life? And Lord, may you guide their gaze to the empty tomb, and to the Savior, Jesus, who reigns. We pray this in his name and for his glory. Amen.